Delmar been saved. Well, that's it, boys. I've been redeemed. The preacher done washed away all my sins and transgressions. It's a straight and narrow from here on out. And heaven everlasting's my reward. Delmar, what are you talking about? We got bigger fish to fry. The preacher said all my sins is washed away, including that Piggly Wiggly I knocked over in Yazoo. I thought you said you was innocent of those charges. Well, I was lying. And the preacher said that that sin's been washed away too. Neither God nor man's got nothing on me now. Come on in, boys. The water is fine. <sighs> I'm going to be reading from Acts 16, starting with verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of someone from Macedonia who was standing there and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help me. After Paul had seen the vision, he began looking for a way to go to Macedonia. We were sure that God had tailed, had tailed us called us to preach the good news there. We sailed straight from Troas to some place to Samothrace and the next day we arrived in Neapolis. From there we went to Philippi which is a Roman colony on the first district of Macedonia. We spent several days in Philippi. Then on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to a place by the river where we thought there would be a Jewish meeting place for prayer. We sat down and talked with the woman who came. One of them was Lydia, who was with the city from the city of Thyatira and sold expensive purple cloth. She was a worshiper of the, the Lord God, and he made her willing to accept what Paul was saying. Then, after she and her family were baptized, she kept on begging us, If you think I really do have faith in the Lord, come stay in my home. Finally, we accepted her invitation. been going through the Acts of the Apostles in our uh, Easter season, and it's been fascinating, right? I mean, it's like vision, the clouds open, then we had uh, Cornelius, uh, well, we had Dorcas before that, Peter goes and is like, Dorcas, you're back, so he raises Dorcas from the dead, uh, Cornelius, who uh, was a Roman centurion, uh, he gets a visit based on a vision, and it's just like vision, vision. And then today we have another sort of vision. And the acts of the apostles is kind of wild, right? It's just over and over and over again these miraculous things are happening in the early Christian community, which is called the way. That's right. So they are the way at this point, um, really pre-Christian at this point. And uh, Paul was on their tail, and I want to, as our little breakout group today, I want you guys to break off into twos, threes, fours, and talk about, okay, knowing what you know now, 
I know some, some of you guys haven't been through it here the whole time, but knowing what you know about Acts now, what would you title this book? All right, you know, it's just called Acts of the Apostles, which was, you know, sort of a literary title given to it, you know, 300 years after the fact, but it doesn't really describe all that was really happening. So break off twos, threes, cut, take a couple of minutes, and talk amongst yourselves. What would you title Acts, knowing what you All right. What do what do we think? Do we have any uh, the action packing? I think that was yours, Liz. The action. At the very least, that needs to be somebody's band name. High schoolers. I'm psychedelic ADs. All right. The wonders of the world. Greg, did you have one? Okay, Miracles in the Church to Come. I, my title that I chose is uh, Movements of the Mysterious Spirit. And uh, we'll, we'll talk more about into that. And I think today's passage really plays into this uh, working of the Spirit. It just continues to hit us week after week. Uh, you know, I am from Texas and come from a Southern Baptist tradition, so it's almost blasphemy of me to even say spirit. Uh, you know, we are not uh, spiritual people in the Southern Baptist realm, especially in Texas. And so, but when you read through Acts, especially when you do an in-depth study like we've done in the last several weeks, you can't deny it, right? Okay, so I was I was reading up this week because it's just so undeniable movements of the spirit, movements of the spirit. So the book of Matthew, book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, mentions pneuma, say that with me, pneuma, pneuma, which means spirit, a version of spirit, 26 times, all right? Mark mentions pneuma 27 times, John 27 times, Luke, Acts, which we know is kind of, you know, sequel to Luke, 163 times, says pneuma. I think Luke is trying to tell us something. The movements of the mysterious spirit. Uh, before we uh, go back through uh, Acts 16, let's let's pray. Living God, long ago, faithful women proclaimed the good news of Jesus' resurrection, and the world was changed forever. Teach us to keep faith with them, and that our witness may be, may be as bold, our love as deep, and our faith as true. Amen. All right, movements of the mysterious spirit. This week, uh, we've been going through the lectionary, which takes us to Acts 16:9. And uh, when Fran was reading that, you may have noticed verse 9 is, is a really weird place to start because Paul just immediately has this vision. And I want to back up a little bit just uh, to give some context to where we pick up the story in verse 9 because you think, okay, Paul just all of a sudden has this vision, but there's really a lot leading up to this that uh, gives, we've been going through this journey on our map. I don't know if you uh, remember my very, very accurate maps. I don't have anything funny going on in my map uh, this week, but we've been down here. So all of our stories have been taking place from Jerusalem and along the coastal cities here. Uh, and now we'll, when we 
pick up this story, we pick up Paul's second missionary journey, and they're going to be up in this region here, all right? And then they start out in, in Troas here is where they set sail and where our story picks up. But what we find that's really, really interesting is that this, when the Spirit moves, it moves in a way that Paul is very confused by. So you'll see what I mean. So verses uh, 1 through 3 in chapter 16. When Paul reached Derby and Lystra, he invited a disciple named Timothy to join him in Silas. Timothy had a good reputation among believers in Lystra and Iconium, but there was a problem. Although Timothy's mother was a believing Jew, his father was Greek, which meant that Timothy was uncircumcised. All right, so we know a little bit about that from last week, Dirty. Because the Jewish people of those cities knew that he was the son of a Greek man, Paul felt it would be best for Timothy to be circumcised before proceeding. I think we can all pause and say, ouch. So, leaving there, uh, a little bit lighter, now accompanied by Timothy, they delivered to the churches in each of these towns the decisions and instructions given by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, kind of like where uh, Peter was last week in Jerusalem. The churches were strengthened in the faith by their visit and kept growing in numbers on a daily basis. They sent the Holy Spirit telling them not to preach in Asia at this time. So if we go back to our map, this right here, Asia Minor. So they go up here, they're like in the Galatia area, and they want to go back down uh, to like Thyatira, Sardis, Ephesus. Uh, but for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit says no, and Paul and Timothy and Silas are very confused by that. So they sense the Holy Spirit telling them not to preach in Asia. They came near Mitha, uh, up there at the top, sort of by the Aegean Sea, and planned to go into Bithynia. But then again, they felt restrained from doing so by the Spirit of Jesus. So they bypassed Missa and went down to Troas, which is actually in Asia. So you have to think at this point, they're thinking, well, okay, the Holy Spirit said don't go to Asia. Here we are in Asia. What, what are we doing here? And it's at this moment that Paul has a vision. So, confused that night, Paul has a vision in which a man from Macedonia is uh, pleading with him. This is interesting because you don't really see, uh, especially in the New Testament, you don't get a vision from God uh, up to this point of another person. Usually, it's some d divine light, an angel, uh, Jesus himself, like as with Paul, and now you have a Macedonian man over here from Europe, calling him over. Uh, and you have to think at this point, uh, no other uh, you know, early disciple has, has been to Europe to preach the good news. So here Paul has a very timely vision, but uh, probably a very confusing one at this point. And then we have uh, a very interesting switch in storytelling at this point. So if you think about what we've outlined in the first eight verses into verse 9, that night, Paul had a vision in which the Macedonian man was pleading with him. Verse 10, the vision convinced us. So what just happened there? The vision convinced us. Luke now inserts himself into the story in a way that he hasn't done up until this point. So that tells us as readers that whatever follows this is really, really important to Luke. He is now immersed into the story, into the experience in a way that he's trying to communicate to us oh, hey, I was a part of this part, and this, like, it gets really interesting here. So the vision convinced us that God was calling 
us to bring the good news to that region. We set sail from the, the port city of Troas, first stopping at Mothrace, which is, uh, you can see in that little map, it's like an island uh, right there in the Aegean Sea. Uh, the next day, we went into Neapolis, finally arriving in Philippi, a Roman colony, one of Macedonia's leading cities. We stayed in Philippi several days. Uh, this probably was at some sort of uh, inn. On the Sabbath day, we went outside of the city walls to a nearby river, assuming that some Jewish people might be gathering for prayer. Now, this here is in the story where we'll pause. See, there's a lot of scholars that disagree the circumstances at this point in the story. Okay, what is going on at Philippi? Nobody can really agree on whether or not there, were, uh, there was a Jewish synagogue in Philippi at this point, so they go outside of the city gates. So some people will say, well, that means that there wasn't a formal synagogue within the city gate. Other people will say, well, no, they would have known that uh, there would have been a synagogue somewhere down by the river. What's interesting is your Bible may translate that word gathering as a place of prayer, but that word actually can literally translate into synagogue. So in your mind, whenever you're thinking about the story, you can either think, okay, this was a formal place somewhere down by a river, or this was just simply some sort of gathering of uh, Jewish people, believers, that was in some sort of informal setting, maybe not a building. But a lot of people actually want to say, uh, and feminist scholars want to say, that this was a formal gathering. But that word gathering there is actually a term, whenever it's used, uh, it's koinonia. It, it, it signifies and implies community. So whatever is taking place down by the river, it's, uh, it's no sort of accident. Uh, these women have gathered there for a purpose, and that was to pray and to worship and to probably talk about uh, the scriptures. So they found a group of women there. This is verse, uh, this is verse 12. Uh, they might be gathering for prayer. We found a group of women there, and we sat down and we spoke to them. One of them, Lydia, was a businesswoman originally from Thyatira. So this is so fascinating from a geographical standpoint because Paul gets a vision, and he gets a vision in Asia Minor, which is Troas, down here. Thyatira is way down here in Asia Minor, where that purple star is. Uh, you know, Lydia is from Thyatira, yet they go all the way to Philippi, to meet a woman from Thyatira. So at this point, you have to be thinking, okay, I got a vision of a Macedonian man, not a woman, a Greek woman from Asia Minor. This is, what is the spirit doing? The spirit moves seriously. She made a living buying and selling purple fabric. So Lydia is... Uh, a wholesale merchant. So purple fabric is actually uh, historically linked to the region where Lydia is from. Lydia actually is uh, uh, a name that signified her province. So uh, a lot of people at that time would have been given a name that was also coinciding to where they were from. So Lydia was from Thyatira. That's the uh, province of Lydia, and therefore she takes upon that name on herself. Thyatira is actually where, historically, they think 
the custom and the art of weaving and making fabric and dyeing fabric actually comes from. So it really makes sense, uh, not only based on, on her name, but her profession and what she did, that she was from this area. She was a merchant of purple cloth. And now she's a wholesaler of purple cloth. So she's over in Philippi, and she probably has a house of women that she uh, organizes. This is part of her community. This is her work. And I think Luke puts this in here to show the importance of the community of women that was all, that were already in uh, Philippi at this time. Uh, you know, she is a Greek woman. She's from Asia Minor, but she's called a God-fearer, which is just uh, a biblical term for uh, women that were Greek that also took upon the Jewish faith. So they were attracted to monotheism. They were attracted to the hope that was uh, given through the scriptures in Judaism. And that's why Lydia, a Greek woman, who's also a merchant seller, is down there by the river at the synagogue. So that gives a little background of, of who Lydia is and why she's down there uh, at the synagogue by the river. She was a true worshiper of God, a foreigner, and, Paul, uh, and she listened to Paul with interest. This makes sense now knowing what we know. She listens with interest because Paul comes in, and they're Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke, our author, are uh, preaching the gospel. So essentially what they're saying is, you know, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the hope that you, that you have. So Lydia, as a Greek woman, she would have had this hope uh, for a Messiah. And Paul comes to her at the synagogue by the river and says, Jesus is the fulfillment of that hope. The Lord opened up Lydia's heart to take in the message with enthusiasm. She and her whole household were ceremoniously washed through baptism. So fascinating. So baptism is a ceremonial washing. We have uh, Luke talk about baptism uh, in the book of Luke and then also in the book of Acts. And what's interesting uh, about this ceremonial washing is that you would have had this in Judaism. I mean, we see uh, John the Baptist you know, baptizing people uh, in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus actually says in the beginning of Acts, uh, he appropriates what, what baptism is going to mean for those, early, uh, for those early Christians. This is what you heard me teach, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 5 that just as John ritually cleansed people uh, through water and baptism, you will be washed with the Holy Spirit very soon. Let's look at what happens during Jesus' baptism. I think we have a uh, scripture. Luke 3:22. One day when crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily, bodily form descended like a dove. And a voice said from heaven, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. So Luke wants us to know that the Holy Spirit is integrally involved in this act of baptism. That it goes from a ceremonial, ceremonial, ceremonial washing <laughs> to a moment in which this mysterious spirit comes upon the person and lays claim to who Jesus already was. I mean, in Luke, when we pick up the story in 3, Jesus is 
you know, he's already, you already know he's the son of man. And yet this is this moment where he is taking this call upon himself. You are my dearly loved. And to Lydia, you are my dearly loved. She has this hope already within her. And Paul is now bringing it to fulfillment. You too are my dearly loved. And what's Lydia's response? Lydia says, if you believe I am truly faithful to the Lord, you must come stay at my home. How many times, we've seen this over and over, that we have this moment where the miraculous happens. We have this moment where the Spirit is moving in the lives of the people, and then there's always a response by the person. And this is a fascinating moment, because it's one of the few times in the New Testament where we have a woman's response. You know, Don, uh, it's so great that you spoke about the importance of mothers because in two weeks ago we had Dorcas, the gazelle, the importance of that community of widows, uh, you know, a house church there on the coast. And then here we have another house church run by women and how important it was for these early communities to operate in a sense of mutuality, uh, you know, there is no uh, Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. It is this picture of the kingdom of God being a place of mutuality. And she says, she and her whole household were ceremoniously washed. And then the response, believe, if you believe that I am faithful, please, you must come stay at my home. This is a movement of uh, what most people say hospitality, which is such a weird word, I think, in the English language, because I always think of hospitality, you know, being from the South. Uh, you know, it's like a Southern manners thing. You know, it's like, okay, hospitality is just, oh, you know, come over for a warm meal or a drink or something like that. Yeah, that's really nice, but the hospitality word in the Bible doesn't really capture a good context of what she's actually extending here. She is persuading, your Bible might maybe say urging uh, them, come stay at my house. And what's fascinating about that verb there is that it's only used one other time by Luke. And the other time is when the disciples are on the uh, road to Emmaus and they run into Jesus. And maybe you remember the story, but they run into Jesus, but they don't know that it's Jesus. And it gets dark and they say, you know, come stay come stay at my house. It's getting dark. You need to come stay at our house. They don't know that's Jesus, but what's important about that is is that it is a dangerous spot to be in at night in the city right after Jesus was crucified because the Roman authorities saw Jesus' crucifixion as a political act. And so what this would have meant was that anybody that was seen uh, crying or hanging around would have been really suspect. And so them urging, you know, hey, this stranger, you know, come stay at our house is saying, oh, you're in danger. You need to, I'm worried about your well-being. Come stay at our house. And this verb is invoked here when Lydia says, Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, come stay at our house. And what she's doing is extending hospitality in a way that says, I care about your entire well-being. What we're, what we're doing here, what we're starting here, this house church, you know, she would have had probably the women that worked with her on uh, the purple dye and the cloth. Uh, come stay at our house. They, their way of operating in community, the gospel way of 
community would have been completely antithetical to uh, a Roman hierarchical system that had uh, wealthy people uh, right under that. You would have had common people. You would have had uh, free men that wouldn't have been slaves. And then I think we have a diagram actually about somewhere. But you would have had uh, free men, and then you would have had slaves. And you knew your place in society, and it operated very strictly as such. And the Christian way of community, if we have that diagram, would have been more like this. Koinonia. Co-participant, co-participant, co-participant. Christ as the thing in common in the middle. This picture of mutuality, of the body of Christ, the believers, all being connected, all being one, uh, diverse but yet unified. It, it flew in the face of this. And so if they were starting this new community, if, they, if Christ was the hope, the fulfillment that Lydia was looking for, that her community was baptized for, this, if they were going back into Philippi, this would have been a political act. Uh, this would have been probably noticed. And so to say, don't stay at an inn. Come, come stay at our house uh, would have been a very uh, hospitable thing to do. And it's interesting when we see uh, Peter talk about hospitality later. Uh, when we talk about, uh, we see Paul talk about hospitality later. When they use that word hospitality, that, that's the context of what they're saying. If you see a brother or a sister in need, open up your house. If you, if you see someone in need, be eager to, with hospitality. Uh, yeah, First Peter 4, 9. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. It is this sense that you may, you may be in trouble. You may be down. Come over. It's, it's, it's beyond this sort of southern hospitality that, that we may tend to think of uh, in today's culture. Women were important in the movement of the early church. The disciples are led on a most unexpected path to meet a group of women in Lydia down by the river in Philippi. Yet, through the, the mysterious spirits movement, the lives of an entire community are transformed. The Holy Spirit is calling each of us down by a river. And in mutuality, we are given an opportunity to respond, however unexpected, the God of the universe who calls each of us in baptism his dearly love. Gracious God, through a vision you sent forth Paul to preach the gospel. You called women to the place of prayer on Sabbath. Grant that we may be like Paul and that we may be found like Lydia and our hearts be responsive to your word. To open up and to go where you lead each and